Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Today's guest grew up the oldest of 12 children to a Hasidic Jewish Orthodox family in Brooklyn. She said being in control of her own future was always a big draw for her. Now she's the CEO of World Financial Group. Fredel, welcome. Yeah, you know what's really interesting? I actually am life insurance licensed and I've never used it. Wow. How did that happen? At what point in your life did you get it? Fairly recently, I actually just renewed it even because I was like, you know what? I worked hard to get it. Why did you take the course? Yeah. So I worked for an IMO Mm -hmm. for about a year and a half and all they did was premium life insurance. Okay. Really what they were doing is putting on like these high-end lunch and learns. Okay. But I was the one walking the people through the door. Wow. Wow. I was the one pre-qualifying all of the people at the steak dinners. Mm. So I had worked for a voiceover IP company in Chicago, and I was doing lunch and learns for them. And that's when I really realized the power of LinkedIn. I was like, wow, you can just make friends with CFOs, centers of influence, make them your friend, and they'll come to your event. So I did that for about a year and a half. And then I was like, oh, I want to be closer to home. I'm a mom. I'm a mom of four. Wow. And there was an opening at a financial firm with someone I knew from the community. I was like, these skills are transferable. Absolutely. So I took a job and it was my job really just to reach out to CPAs, estate attorneys, financial advisors all day long, every day for pretty much my entire stay at that place. Wow. So I accrued hundreds of them. They're all on LinkedIn. And a lot of them don't know that strategy. Yeah, it's not, it's not very widely known. Yeah. And they all want to make that kind of return. Mm-hmm. So I just made friends with all these financial advisors. I got them to come to our steak dinners. And then I'm like seeing these cases and seeing the commission on them. And I'm like, wait a minute, my phone is the one that's ringing. Right. I should get licensed. Exactly. So then one of the CPAs said, I want to work with you and not who you're working for. Can we put on an event together? I actually want to talk to you about this. So, you know, he starts sharing all the financials of his clients with me. First of all, he put on an event with the guy that I worked for, but then his clients liked me and like, were communicating with me. And then he was like, wait, can't we just work together? And I was like, well, if we do that, then I have to leave where I'm at. So I decided to leave the firm Mm. because he was going to give me access to all his high net worth individuals. And I was like, all I got to do is close one and that's a year's salary. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And my boss was already doing it. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is what I didn't realize is that you go to swim with the sharks. Yeah. It could be a little cutthroat in some cases. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, I guess it just depends who you're in business with, right? Like <laughs> I tend to stay away from those type of business, like meaning the way I've run my business for the last 
was it 17 years now is if it's a cutthroat type of transaction, I'm just not going near it. Like I rather, yeah, it might be a huge commission or whatever, but it's not the business I'm in. There's a difference between, okay, you have access to do all these big deals, but you're not in the big deal business. Does that make sense? And it's just in a different environment. It took me probably six to eight months to even wrap my head around the strategy. Yeah. So I didn't even fully understand what was all happening because I was a marketer. But the thing is, is I had a relationship with the lender. I had a relationship with the CPAs. I had the relationship with the financial advisors. So I was like, I should be able to do this. And I felt like since I had access to all of those pieces that I could, but truthfully, I didn't like, like you were saying, the cutthroatness of it. Mm-hmm. And it felt like too risky of business to tread alone. So how much do you know about what I do? I did go to your website. I liked your motivational quotes and the videos that you had on your LinkedIn. Thank you. <laughs> yes. But yeah, no, I would love to dig deeper into what it's like to be a woman in the financial industry. Like that is what I want to know. And you're at the top of that. Yeah. Honestly, the way I came into the business, I didn't wake up and say, I want to be a financial advisor, right? So I I never really experienced the like barrier to entry in that way, where it was like, okay, where do I start? And, And seeing all male, like, you know, especially at the top, but majority being male. So for me, it was like almost like an evolution of my career. I started out, it was a part time job. I didn't think it was going to be my business. I didn't think it was going to be what I do. When that happened, which was self motivated, meaning I made that decision. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to go do fashion design. I'm not, I'm going to quit school. I'm going to go do this. It wasn't like a male or female thing. The more successful I became, that's when I really saw it, right? That's when I saw, wow, like, and, and I remember this so clearly. It was actually, I was probably in the business about four years, had a decent amount of success at that point. I started going to New York because I knew I, well, I started my business in California and I started going to New York to expand, but I was kind of testing the waters going there. And I went to a few product provider workshops. Now, I don't know if you've ever been, but same thing that you just described, seminar, right? Lunch and learn, come wine and dine, that type of thing. And when I walked into the room and I actually bought two of my female associates with me and we were the only women in the room. That was kind of when it just like, it shocked me in a way that was like, wow, because in the environment I was in, I didn't feel it. Our broker dealer is actually the number one broker dealer for women in the entire industry in terms of rep size. So we have a 50 to 50 ratio of male to female, which is pretty, a pretty big deal in the industry. But then when I saw that and I was like, wow, like this is something special, right? So And that was kind of where I I started thinking about like, how can I really help women in the business? I started a campaign called Women and Wealth. It's pretty much an event that we do every year around the conversation of wealth, but specifically with women, you know, and then I started looking around also at, you know, the successful men and women, not just in my organization, but also like outside. And I noticed that there was a lack of that outside of our broker dealer. So um, I think that I personally didn't feel it that much just because I was, it was almost like I was in this kind of like my own bubble, so to speak. 
The more successful I became, the more I started talking to people, I noticed it even more. I think it's going to change because of the fact that women are great at this business. And COVID, by the way, brought on a whole nother subset of the ability for women to even imagine themselves doing it. Because in the past, my business has been structured very much virtually for a long time already, but it wasn't necessarily an accepted thing outside, right? So you, you talk to a client, they're like, no, I want to come meet you. Or even on an associate, like we did training, they would want it to be in person. Now, obviously, it's, it had to be, so it's accepted. So what's happened is that a mom can do this at home, right? Like a woman can multitask. And, and so it's just become, I think, and it will become even more of something that people, women will see themselves as being able to do as long as they can wrap their head around the conversation of money, which is something that they tend to steer away from. And in scenarios like you just mentioned, where the cutthroat comes out, it's like, eh, I don't want to go there, you know? Okay. So speaking about the conversation of money, do you feel like you have to talk to a man versus a woman differently about money? I do. I think that they speak different languages. You ask a man, and this is not everybody, obviously I'm, I'm stereotyping a little bit, but you ask a man, what's the more, most important thing about your portfolio? It's like, what's the best rate of return? How can I make money fast? Like you ask a woman the same question. It's like, how can I make sure this is safe? How can I make sure my family's okay? You know? So yeah, the conversation's entirely different. And so having the language that's appropriate, it might even be the same product. It's the more of the language. What's the approach? What's the conversation? And what do they feel comfortable discussing when it comes to a woman? And, and this is again, where the industry being male dominated has always had the language of what I just described as talking to a man, right? If, if a man is in the industry and presents to a woman, chances are they're going to talk about the rate of return, but they're not necessarily addressing the needs of what that woman wanted. So I think that with those different conversations, that's also another reason why women excel very well in that marketplace is because they can speak that language and not only to women, but they can pivot when they're speaking with a man as well. I'm passionate about helping women, but I also help a lot of men too, both as clients, as well as agents that come into the business and want to get trained and learn how it works. How do you establish trust? I built my business on a referral basis from day one. So coming in, there's already some level of trust, but even in a, let's just call it a cold conversation, right? Where it's not necessarily a referral. It's about addressing their needs. It's never coming in about like, let me talk to you about the hottest product, or I can get you the best, you know, rate of return or the best investment or the you know, oh, you got to see this. It's always asking them questions about what their needs are. I like to find a problem, like a dissatisfaction, something that they need assistance with, and I'm going to be the one to solve that for them. And then it's going to be through their finances. So identifying what are, what are their fears? What is it that, that is something that's holding them back? And then saying, okay, well, what if you could be in the market, you can earn money, but you'd have some protection right? You'd have this like sense of like, you know what, I'm okay. Or maybe knowing exactly what it would take to, to get you to your retirement. Do you even know what you need, right? So giving them an understanding. And I like to have people feel empowered where they don't need to become a financial advisor. They don't need to do what I do, but they need to know what they have. I find that people have no clue. They literally are doing things with their hard-earned money. They work their whole life, right? To earn 
but then what they do with the money, no clue. So I want to give people a clue. And as they have that knowledge, they're empowered. And I, I believe trust starts there. I still feel like it's so hard to know which companies are trustworthy. And companies change. That's the thing also, right? So you can have a great company and a CEO changes and it's no longer a great company or something like that. I'm not going to get too technical, but there's, there's an analysis that happens with money managers where they do something called a quantitative analysis, right? Where they're looking at the numbers, the P ratios, all the stuff that happens behind the scenes. But there's another analysis that a lot of times people don't do with investing, and that's called fundamental analysis. And fundamental analysis is analyzing things like that. That's a very important thing to consider, one, with, with your own investments, but also with companies that you're dealing with. We actually have a research and development team that that's all they do. They, on an annual basis, will basically go through the whole portfolio of companies that we deal with and constantly adding, but also removing, right? Companies that don't meet that guideline that they've set that has to do with not only fundamental, but also quantitative. You know, there's also third-party systems that rate financial companies. We really only work with A-rated companies for that matter, just as a third party, but then also do the, our own due diligence to be able to make sure that it's still good, right? What are questions that people should be asking that they don't even know to ask? When it comes to investing or thinking about life insurance? The questions that they need to ask are related to their situation. A lot of times, and this is a, it's kind of like a weird answer because you'd think that those would be the questions they ask. <laughs> but actually, I find that people ask questions based on what they've heard versus what they need. So the question is, what is great for you? It's not a one size fits all. It never will be. So that's why I say the questions that are best to ask are in relation to your situation. So you said that you started on a referral basis from the get-go. Were you selling your friends? I actually didn't have any friends that would buy. <laughs> so if I did, I probably would. <laughs> well, I was very young. I was, I was almost 21 when I started. I was 21 when I got licensed. So nobody thinks they need these type of products at that time. Right. And certainly my family that did need it, didn't believe it from me because who was I? I was, I was broke. I was in debt. Like, why would I give them any advice? Right. So I really learned how to just address people that I didn't know. Right. Like to, to start building relationships, to start talking to people. And fortunately I was able to be in a position where I was able to actually build a team very quickly. So it didn't become only about me, right? So I was empowering other people to also get into the financial industry and, and get them through a training program. So my market switched very quickly from my own personal market to many different markets, you know, from different ethnicities, languages, just totally different types of people, which I love because, you know, my background, I was grew up in a very sheltered community. So for me, it was like, whole experience just on a personal level but on a business level it allowed me to get into a lot of different markets and and just learn how to talk to people and it was the best thing that ever happened i actually want to talk about how you grew up in a sheltered community if you will sure <laughs> i assumed with the name freidel yeah 
Well, what caught my eye was how you, you actually connected with me on LinkedIn, which usually nobody actually even reads your profile or what, where you come from. And you actually, I think you mentioned about my birthday being on Yom Kippur. And so that was actually, it was like, oh, I think I should respond to this person. So that was really good. <laughs> yeah. What was that like? My birthday actually fell on Yom Kippur for my 40th birthday. I was like, well, I guess God doesn't want me to go out and drink. Right. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So did you grow up religious? Yeah, I grew up Hasidic. I grew up in Crown Heights. I mean, I was always the rebel. I was always the rebel child, always, you know, being called out. But, you know, I never did anything bad from a secular point of view, but from a orthodox, ultra orthodox Hasidic community point of view, everything that's not in line with that was considered rebel, right? So I went to an all-girls school all the way through high school, then to seminary in Israel. I mean, typically the path for a girl like that is you, you're done with your year in Israel. You come home and you get married and have kids, which my sister did that. She has seven kids. But I, I, I knew that was never for me. I knew there was just a world out there that, well, I didn't know exactly. I just knew that it was my calling, you know? my God, I love this part of the story because I didn't grow up religious. Oh, really? I have a sister now in Ramat Beit Shemesh who had five boys in, you know, nine years. And she's totally off the deep end now <laughs> and probably won't eat in my house. And then I have another sister and I, we all grew up in Kentucky, another sister who married an Israeli. They met in New York. They actually lived on the same street and didn't even know it. Wow. They made Aliyah. So both of my sisters are married, religious. I mean, they keep Shabbos and kosher and whatnot and have a slew of kids. I have four. The other sister has four and then the other one has five. Wow. But So are you religious now? <sighs> Semi? <laughs> Semi. And I totally relate to the rebel thing. I grew up a Jew in Kentucky. Did not fit in, obviously. Didn't even want to be Jewish in Kentucky. Yeah. Used to tuck my Jewish star in. It wasn't until I moved to LA and worked in TV where I was like, oh, it's cool to be Jewish. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Where right. I finally felt safe. I even lived in Chicago and worked in television and wasn't religious, didn't keep any holidays. It wasn't until I was actually engaged to someone who wasn't Jewish and then my dad had a problem with it. And I was like, wait, I dated not Jewish all growing up. Why is it suddenly now a thing? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so is he religious? Dad? Um, he doesn't keep Javis yeah. or Kosher, but their own level of that. He is a very spiritual man, definitely a believer in God, but it was important for him to have us marry Jewish and he really mm -hmm. put his foot down on that. But I took like a year off after I called off that engagement and really like I went to Israel and I thought about things and really explored. And my husband, his mom is Jewish, his dad isn't. And, you know, he comes from a broken home. And we were both kind of exploring when we met each other. And we decided for our first date to go to a kosher restaurant. And it kind wow. of evolved from there. Interesting. But we That's met on J-Date when that was a thing. Oh, really? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's how I grew up, which I, I really, you know, I still appreciate all those teachings. And I mean, I consider myself Jewish. I just not going to do the religious level that my family would want, you know? So how do they, how does your family feel about that? 
Not good. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's evolved, right? So initially it was like somebody died and not coming back type of thing. And my fiance is not Jewish. So that's still a thing, right? That's still not accepted at all. But my kids are half Jewish, right? So, and, and I'm Jewish, so it is still sensitive, but I respect it, you know, and what I've shared with my parents, like, especially before my first child was born, like, this is the path that I've chosen. And I want you to be a part of that. But if you choose not to be, you have to also understand my decision not to be part of anything. It was a difficult conversation, but I think that I, I'm a big believer in this is your life, right? Like, yes, you have parents, you have siblings, people listen to, the, to everybody else, but what are you listening to yourself, right? Are you listening to what do you want for your life? And I think it's so prevalent in today's society and social media amplifies it, but that, you know, validation, like you need validation. It's like the addiction of people's approval right? It's an approval addiction. So it's natural to have it, but I try to stay away from that as much as possible and really identify like what's important for me and then get after that. Where did you get that sureness that you knew that it wasn't for you? I think I had that since I was a little girl. I just remember questioning everything. You know, what's interesting is I always had a connection spiritually. Like I was actually intrigued by the concept of God and, you know, asked a lot of questions, but the path that I was led on where it's all about the, the do this, don't do this. Like, this is how you serve God. Everything I learned about God didn't connect with that. And so I didn't feel that sense of like, okay, you're, I'm learning this, but what I'm being told is, is how you get there is not what I'm feeling. So when I got back from Israel, that was when I was able to live on my own and make the choices. Right. But in Israel, I was, I was very spiritually connected because I discovered that, at least for myself, I can still believe in God, have a spiritual connection, and not necessarily do or do not do all the things that my entire life I was taught. And so that's kind of where it evolved, and that's what I, I believe. I love that. Do you still daven? Yeah. I mean, on holidays, you know, I don't, not every day, but I, what is Davin, right? Like, do I read the Hebrew words? No, I don't do that every day. Do I pray every day? Like, do I speak to God, Hashem? Yes. You know, I just, I believe that's how you connect, but I'm not going to do it by reading words that I don't even know what I'm reading, you know, like understand the Hebrew. I mean, we learned how to read and write Hebrew, but it wasn't until I lived in Israel that I really learned to even to understand any Hebrew. What was seminary like? It was actually the best thing in the world. I didn't think it was going to be. So I think it was also the, the place I went to. It was kind of like a school for all the rebels. So when they all get together, it's like party. <laughs> so literally it was a year. I mean, Israel's the most amazing place, as you know, a year of traveling. I met people from all over the world. They were, we lived in this gorgeous it was the middle of nowhere, but it was like literally a hotel. We had someone cleaning. We had central AC. We had, which as you know, in Israel is not necessarily everywhere. It was like a hotel. Like you were living in a hotel. You got to travel every weekend to different places. Spring break, I got to go to Ukraine because I met someone there that 
wanted me there. I think another summer break or something, we went to South Africa. Like it was literally a year that I didn't, I wasn't in the US. So I also appreciated some things that we have in America that I wasn't there for a year. So it was, it was a, a tremendous experience that really helped me just define my future, like what I want and also understanding like where people come from, different personalities. I kind of was with the same type of people my whole life. So it really opened me up to different experiences and appreciating different types of people. Wow. I would send my daughter to one like that. Yeah. <laughs> They're not all like that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I feel like the one thing that really stuck out that I missed about America was a good washing and drying machine. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> you, you said you lived there for a year? I went there for a couple of summers, but when my husband and I got married, he decided because he never got the opportunity to learn that we would go as a couple and he would take classes and I would figure out how to cook. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When I was single and working in television, I ordered out pretty much every meal. Right. I can imagine. Have you seen Money Destroy People? I think money brings out the trueness of people. So if you're evil, it will make you more evil. If you're a good person, it will make you a good person. So not necessarily destroy, but I think it really brings out your true essence. Also in Judaism, we're not necessarily supposed to want Goshmias or money, right? The purpose of not wanting it is because everything you're supposed to do is to serve God. However, let's take an example. Like, okay, we just had the holiday of sukkahs, right? So someone wants to build a beautiful sukkah. Guess what? That costs a lot of money. So how are you going to not, like, that's a goshmias thing, but you're using it to serve God, right? So I, I don't believe that it's so, like, black and white, like, and you know what? There are people that think like that. Like my dad kind of has that type of mentality where it's like, we don't need anything. We, you know, but the reality is you still live in the real world, right? You still live in a world where without money, you can't do anything. You can't help anyone. Like, even if you want, if you want to dedicate your whole life to charity, you still need money to live. You still need, and if you want to donate money, you need money to give. So I, I just believe that's very intertwined. And that's where, again, going back to my other answer is like, if you're a good person and you make a lot of money, you could do a lot of great things with your money. I really respect that answer. One thing that I have a hard time with is seeing people that have huge houses and now have set up tent synagogues in their backyard that sometimes they don't even themselves attend. The, the living of the double life. I have a hard time with that. Like the picture perfect kids. Like you said though, it does cost money to have those types of things. Dude, kosher food, very expensive. Uh, Pesach retreats, oh yeah. my God, you know? Yeah, I hear you on that. But I think that like my perspective is a little different. This is kind of what actually was one of the things that turned me off about the community that I come from because, so I came from Chabad, right? So they have tremendous outreach programs and actually several of my siblings, that's what they do, right? They, and, and it's, they're amazing. Like what they do is unbelievable. So to all the people that they do outreach, 
their philosophy is as long as you're everything counts, right? Like you mentioned the tent, you know, they're, they're not even attending, but they have a tent in there for them. That would count because why they're doing a good deed. But with people in the community, if you're not everything, you're nothing. And so I had a problem with that here. You're, you're going out there and, and going to people outside of the community who are not religious. And as long as they do one thing, like you did your job and they're doing great. But here you have people in your community that maybe they're not doing things perfectly, but they get shunned, right? And they're not accepted because just because they were brought up there doesn't mean that they need to do everything perfectly. I was just getting ready to say we need to have less judgment and like every mitzvah counts, right? Like yeah. if somebody lights candles and then goes and flips on the TV, I'm like, they still got credit. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, my dad drives down to spend Shabbos with us and he might keep it for the night and then drive home in the morning. And I'm like, that's fine. That's wonderful. I'm happy he came for the Friday night dinner. Right. And I might have neighbors that are not cool with me letting him drive home. Yep. But also I've, you know, invited people to my sukkah like that pre-COVID, you know? Mm -hmm. I think growing up not religious and then choosing this that I'm much more like understanding, but I am definitely judged. I actually pulled all three of my kids out of the most popular Orthodox school and I'm sending to like a much more progressive school now because I felt like our family didn't fit. Mm. I actually homeschool my kids, but I did it prior to COVID. So for us, and I don't, I mean, I homeschool, but I'm not necessarily the one doing it. So we have different teachers and stuff like that. But I just made the decision before because I realized that I just want to lead my kids in their path. So why am I going to let someone that I don't even know be the one to make those decisions of what they're learning and what's the, what are they highlighting who are they socializing? And not that I'm going to, like, I know that I'm not, that's not going to be controlled for their whole life, nor do I want it to be. But the, I want to instill the principles from the young age so that they can hopefully make the good decisions later on. I love that you can do that as a CEO. What? <laughs> yes, it's happening. <laughs> so... And it's going great. I mean, it's such a great, it was one of the best decisions. And my, my kids were going to like top private schools in New York. How did you navigate that? It was a little overwhelming at first. Actually, when I got pregnant with my first child, that was like my first go-to thought. Like, okay, I'm going to homeschool. Like, because I, I didn't like the experience I had as a kid in school. I didn't fit the mold. And I went to an all girls, all academic Hebrew school. So there was no sports, there was no drama, there was no arts, there was nothing but book study, right? Like learning. I didn't like it. I couldn't explore. I couldn't be who I wanted to be. So my whole image of school was obviously my experience. And so when I thought about, oh my God, my kid, like I don't want them going through any type of experience like that. That's it, like homeschool. And then I spoke to someone and they're like, are you crazy? Like you live in New York, you know, like they have the best schools there. So I was like, yeah, I am kind of being like pretty dumb. Like at least go look at them. And, and I did, and I got, you know, and this is a, a great example of being impressed with the wrong things. I don't know if you've ever gone to a private school showing, but they have a great display of beautiful aesthetics 
nothing like what my school looked like. Like, wow, like this looks beautiful. And look, like, look at their art projects and this and that. And I, I just got sold. And, and I didn't realize it until actually my second kid was already in that school. And it wasn't a bad school, by the way. It was just not my expectations of what I wanted for my children. What actually made me realize was there was a, a kid in my son's school. And I think he had some learning disabilities and, and whatnot. But I saw a major change in my son. And the teachers kept just saying like, oh, it's his age, it's this, we don't see anything in the classroom. And it made me just realize like, I'm the one who should be directing like what happens in those scenarios, right? Nobody's gonna care more about my kids than me. And it doesn't mean I have to be the teacher, I don't have to be the educator, but I'm the director, right? I'm the one that can like, say, okay, what are we learning? You know, I'm very entrepreneurial. I want him to learn about businesses. What are most kids taught in school? Go to school, graduate school, get a degree. Like, that's not what I want my kid to learn. So if that's the case, why am I putting them on the path of that, right? So fortunately, I learned that pretty early on. I was like, okay, I need to be sure with my decision. So I went and toured like 30 schools, including public schools. Cause I was like, oh, maybe public schools, like obviously you're not paying an insane amount of money every year. And let me see what those are like. I didn't, I never been to a public school. So let me, so I literally private school, public school, big ones, small ones. And I was just like, you know what? This is the right decision. I can't believe that you approached 30 schools and handled that like a quantitative analysis. (laughs) Yep. That's funny too, because like you said, I tried swimming. My oldest loved that. Tried piano lessons. He hated that. Tried, you know, martial arts. And I was even thinking for the amount that I am spending on private school, I could hire retired teachers. Exactly. To teach my kids individually. And I never even thought of doing that until COVID. Yeah. A lot of people are in the same boat. Like suddenly it's like, oh, wait a minute this could work, you know, you were forced for it to work. But as you see, it's something that could work. I hired a reading and writing tutor for my kids over the summer, because I felt like that was really important for their age Mm -hmm. to stay on top of at least that. And my kids loved it so much and started writing creatively and getting more into reading. And I was like, well, let's just keep that up for the year. It seems like we need that. Yeah, that's awesome. But, but that's like, like such a great example of that. Like you're kind of letting them lead their interests, right? And they will let you know what they like and don't like. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep, for sure. So one other thing I would love to talk to you about is, yeah, like if you see someone that you think this could be a good career path for, how do you bring somebody in and really make them great? So I think it's, Well, first of all, I don't make anyone great. I think that that comes from within, right? It's just, I think it's, it's giving people one, it's encouragement, right? I think that a lot of times people are put down in their life, right? Like you can't do this. You're not going to be good at this or like, this is not for you. I mean, I know that's what people told me when I first started in business. Well, what are you doing? You're in fashion. Like you're going to finance, like, well, that's not you. 
or you were the non-academic kid. Like, what are you doing in the financial world? You know, so people will always hear these type of comments and whether they're a joke or they're serious, I think it, it gets ingrained and people have this lack of confidence in things that are unfamiliar. So one of the things, and that's why you'll see a lot of stuff from me about that are more on the motivational side, like inspiration. I do a ton of personal and leadership development with people that I work with, because I believe that if you're going to go for making, and it's not even just a money thing, it's, it's a new industry, it's, but, but we'll use money as a measurement. You're going to go from making $50,000 to $500,000. It's not just going to be what you do. It's going to be how you think. It's going to be how you communicate. It's going to be your thought processes, your habits, your actions. And so we need to make sure to work on that because if you learn a skill, but you haven't learned those things, then you're only going to get so far. And so that's, that's one part of it. The other part is really making sure that they have the confidence in doing what we do, right? So someone has to actually believe in it, you know, and it's not, when I say believe in it, it's not a religion, but meaning like they have to be passionate about it. They have to understand how this helps people, how this is something that's a positive, like, like even the questions that you were asking me earlier about, well, isn't this a cutthroat industry? Like people have this perception and if you're going to be in this business, you need to really understand the difference between what this business is and maybe how some people run this business. And those are two separate things. Unfortunately, sometimes, you know, the insurance industry or certain, you know, premium financing or whatever it might be, get certain bad, bad rap because of bad individuals. But essentially what it actually can do for people is extremely powerful. And so I try to instill that by getting, giving them knowledge and education about how it can actually help people and giving a really good understanding of that. And then when people can actually have that knowledge very clearly, they're like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. And they can actually run with it. That's a great answer. Have you been to Tony Robbins? Actually, we had a private event. For, so I haven't been to one of his general events, but we got him as a private event to to one of our, our company events. So I've seen him, yeah. What did you think? I thought he was great, but I, we actually have some amazing speakers in our company, like Ed Milet, for example. I know you've, you've watched some of his stuff. That's more my style. So I loved it. I thought it was very energizing, but I also like other styles as well. Yeah, you said that Ed Milet was a business partner. What has it been like working with him? He's a great mentor. He, you know, I've, pretty much known him since I started in the business. He's very gifted. He's very gifted, very talented, not just in what obviously he knows and all the businesses he's done, but from the way he gets you to think about your thoughts, right? And if you ever listen to any of his YouTube or podcasts, it's, it's like this ability to connect with your heart and your mind in relation to your own thoughts. And I think that a lot of times when you're listening, let's just say you're listening to a webinar or, or you're going to an event or whatever, you hear something, right? And it's, it's almost like it's one-sided, like you're, you're hearing it, you're taking, oh, wow, that's a great point, but it doesn't necessarily connect with your own thoughts. And I think that when, and, and this is what, you know, I've learned from him and not, not saying that I do this great, but I, I strive to is when I, when I'm sharing something with someone, I want to connect it to their thoughts so that they can think about their own thought process. And that's where it makes an impact, right? That's where someone will like listen to that and then they actually go do something about it. 
right? It's if they connect it to themselves. Who are the five people that you most surround yourself by? Well, I definitely my mentors and then it's my family. Right now I'm very family focused. My kids, my spouse, my, you know, those are most of the people. It's either that or the people in my business. Well, thank you for having this conversation. And I can't believe this happened from like a happy birthday Yom Kippur message. That is so awesome. It it really is. And it's also like, I never respond to those. I I just, it just caught my eye. I was just like, how does she know that? You know? (laughs) So I was like, okay, let me respond. (laughs) And then you happen to be on right then. So, which I'm not on LinkedIn that often. So I don't usually have that quick back and forth. But hey, you never know. But no, I appreciate you reaching out and hopefully that was helpful and something that can inspire others. Thank you. All right. Okay, well, enjoy the rest of your evening. And I'll be interested to see what your dad has to say about that conversation. (laughs) That'll be interesting part. (laughs) Oh boy, let's go to grandpa. Well, this was a, a beautiful conversation with Fredel and Rena, and I really enjoyed the conversation. You were as revealing about your background and your experiences as she was with hers. And to have this honest conversation is, again, what the Better Call Daddy show is all about, is where you can be yourself and be able to really discuss how you go from A to Z. And it was a very insightful thing on a few subjects. And the one that, of course, that I like the best is when it comes up to when you're in a high position and you're making money, that everybody looks at things sometimes in the wrong perspective. I thought that Fredo had the right perspective, is that money doesn't really destroy people. It really brings out sometimes the bad character that people have. It's a very revealing tool. I really agree with that and uh, like the way she put that and people that make a lot of money and are able to use it for not only obviously their benefit, but where they use the money to benefit a lot of other people and to do great things with the money if they have that opportunity is also enhances good people to do more and better things and to be able to really help fulfill their dreams and be able to give back and have other people's dreams come true as well. So I have a similar philosophy when it comes to money. I think the reason why Fredel is being successful also is because she also was being taught in a restrictive environment. And she's the type of person that can think outside the box. People that can think outside the box and are able to listen and learn from others and teach others, you're going to be far more successful than having to live and be put into a box where you have to do things a certain way or it's unacceptable or it's uh, not right. And it closes your creativity as well. Uh, You have to be able to be open-minded because if we only see what's right in front of us, you can't see around, you can't see under, you can't see on top. Fredel, isn't it interesting that when you grow up a certain way, 
and you're restricted or you're not really accepting the way you're being taught. And look how she started in finance and working for probably a stockbroker where you don't necessarily have to have a degree. You have to have training. You have to have and develop your communication skills. You have to develop your networking. You've got to develop a lot of, uh, a lot of things uh, that sometimes you don't even learn in school. You, le- you learn in the real world. And she was more adaptable to living and learning in the real world and had a lot of common sense. And the way she was taught, she says, you know, when I'm going to have children, I want them to be able to think outside the box. I want them to be able to see what's important to learn and not necessarily what's written. Never be a slave of the book. Okay, and when the going gets tough, the tough get going and the jellyfish fall by the wayside. That's a famous thing that one of my teachers in high school used to say, and he was my chess coach also, is that it's not those people that tell you that it's got to be done one way or another. When things are tough, you've got to figure out how to get out of that mess, and you better be able to pivot and adapt to your environment or you're not going to get anywhere. And it's not just in the book. So I like the way she was able to adjust to her education by learning hands-on and being cultivated and learning about other people. That trip to Israel is hopefully where you can feel the presence of God. And that's what she got there. It not, didn't teach her how to pray or standardize her praying, it gave her a chance to feel the holiness of the Holy Land and to be connected to God, and she can have a relationship with God and be quite religious without going to religious school or going to shul every day or davening things that she might not understand. Being Jewish and connected to God is maybe two different issues. Anyway, I think that she is a very religious person. I don't necessarily agree that it's necessarily the best for her her children and her children's children, the route that she took. But time time will tell on that. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Rin10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show.